Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter two. We'll be reading verses eight through thirteen. Second Timothy two, beginning with verse eight. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church family, September 11, 2001 does mark a very significant time in our history as a nation. 21 years ago already, but of those of us who are, let's say, 25, 26 years of age and older, probably we remember the exact time that it happened, where we, were, where we were when we heard news about it. For on September 11, 2001, 19 terrorists associated with the Islamic extremist group Al-Qaeda hijacked four airplanes and carried out suicide attacks against targets within our nation. Airplanes, and it was hard to believe, airplanes were used as weapons of mass destruction. Two of the planes were flown into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. A third plane hit the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., the fourth plane crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania as a result of heroic action on the part of the occupants of the plane. But all said in total, 2,977 people were killed. On that day, terrorism hit home. And many, many people experienced the fear of being vulnerable to enemy attack. Now, personally, I have to admit, I had nightmares for several months after the event happened. In my dreams that were repeated, I was on one of the planes that was flying, and I was trying to prevent the hijackers from crashing the plane into the Trade Center. And each time I had that dream, I'd wake up disappointed. Because nothing can erase what happened 
on that tragic day. Now, since that time, we have experienced other things that cause fear. We have faced the threat of COVID-19. It has crippled our economy. It has hindered education of our children. It has killed many of our citizens. And it continues to cause trouble and various strains and mutations. Last year, I was buying some supplies at a Lowe's store near Syracuse, New York. And the young woman at the checkout informed me that she was one who had tested positive for COVID. But then she went on to say to me that she was not going to allow the fear of COVID to run her life. She was unaware of the fact that I was a pastor. But she proceeded to inform me that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. And because of that, we don't have to worry because when we die, we have a home in heaven. She also said, the Bible tells us, do not fear that which destroys the physical body. And she said that living in fear takes away the joy of celebrating God's presence in our life every day. And finally, she said we can trust God because he's in control. Now, I have often pondered that conversation. And I've asked myself, are there other passages in the Bible that can help us dispel fear? The kind of fear that was elicited on September 11, the kind of fear that people are living in right now with the reality of COVID. And the answer is yes. In fact, we just read a passage that is a wonderful passage to give us hope and certainty. Our text in 2 Timothy 2 is written by the Apostle Paul. And at this particular time, he's languishing in a cold dungeon. He's chained to the wall like a convicted criminal. And Paul knew a few things. He knew that he would never again be able to visit with his companion and fellow pastor, Timothy. That he would never again be able to share in ministry with him at, at Ephesus. Paul sensed that his life here on earth was coming to a conclusion. He knew that Christians were undergoing severe persecution. And he knew that the authorities were responding with horrendous forms of death. And he was in line. He is literally on death row. So the words he's writing we could look at as his last will and testament. If anyone had a right to be fearful, Paul did. If you think about it, his future was as bleak as ever. And yet, amazingly, he speaks words of hope. Author Charles Erdman writes, possibly no other of the New Testament letters makes so tender of an appeal. Every paragraph is suffused with emotion. Every sentence throbs with the pulse beat of a human heart. 
Paul, the dauntless missionary hero, the founder of the church in Asia Minor and in Europe, is now an aged prisoner in Rome, suffering, deserted, despised, condemned, and soon to be led forth to a cruel death. So indeed, it's incredible that these powerful, heartfelt words of conviction that we read come from the quill of a man who's literally waiting on death row. And as he does so, Paul speaks in affectionate terms of that which matters most to him in life, that which is most dear to his heart, faith in Jesus Christ, and sharing that faith with others. It's his primary focus and desire. As we look closer at the words of our text, Paul identifies four crucial concepts that we should consider in order to dispel fear. First, he says, hold Christ in the forefront of your mind. Second, stand strong in the power of God's word. Third, place a priority on reaching lost souls. And fourth, Rest secure in the promise of eternal life. Paul says these truth, truths form the heartbeat of our Christian faith. We begin with Paul's advice to hold Christ in the forefront of our minds. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So Paul is here sharing an essential truth with Timothy. That boldness, that conviction and courage are rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Master of our lives. The Greek word that he uses and is translated as remember is used in an active imperfect sense. The reason I say that is it's a command that conveys an ongoing action. So literally, Paul is saying to Timothy, keep on or continue remembering Jesus Christ. In other words, never allow the reality of Jesus, who he is, and the work that he has accomplished, fade away from your mind. Remember that Jesus is with you wherever you go, in all that you do, at all times. Paul has a similar perspective when he writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand on the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted." Believers 
living at this time in which Paul is writing, were facing some of the most severe opposition and persecution under the leadership of Nero. And as the violence against Christians kept escalating, Paul reminds his readers, and he reminds us as well, that Jesus holds the reins of the universe in his hands, and that we should never ever forget that fact. And that when the gospel, the truth, is declared with conviction, we should expect some opposition. It will be stirred up. Submitting to Jesus Christ, he's reminding us, is, as we're told in question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, I am not my own. But I belong in body and in soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, the question is this, what gives you comfort in life? That I belong to Jesus Christ. He is my faithful Savior. So Paul says, hold Christ in the forefront of your mind. Incorporate the teachings of Christ into the words that you speak, into the decisions that you make, into the actions that you demonstrate. For the word Christian means exactly as it sounds, Christ one. And so the greatest goal is to reflect our Savior Jesus Christ in all areas of our lives. Paul's second instruction is to stand strong in the power of God's Word. We pick up where we left off. In verse 8, it says, remember Jesus Christ. And then at the end of that verse, it says, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. He says that with conviction and confidence. Paul is here contrasting his own situation, his own physical imprisonment to the spiritual freedom that is found in the Word of God. In Ephesians 6 verse 17, Paul speaks specifically of the Word of God as a sword of the Spirit. And he's saying God's Word when it's proclaimed, always goes forth with power, and it is always effective. It is God's sovereign weapon or tool that he uses to reveal his truth and to convict hearts and minds. In his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther declares, The body they may kill, but what? But God's truth abideth still. That is such a humbling thought to us as human beings. The effectiveness of the gospel message does not depend upon natural endowments that we are given. Rather, when we share our faith, when we declare God's word, we are being used as instruments in which God conveys the truth. Paul is reminding us the human voice can ultimately be silenced, but the power of God's word never, ever 
can be silenced. John Bunyan, who wrote the famous book Pilgrim's Progress, was placed in a prison in Bedford, England. His crime? Preaching from the Bible. He was put into prison. And while he was in prison, his persecutors couldn't stop hearing the word of God being communicated. Day after day, he would preach from his cell, from being imprisoned, to hundreds of listeners, and they were standing outside to hear God's word being proclaimed. There were stone walls, iron bars, heavy chains, and yet it couldn't prevent God's word from being effective. We're told that in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Paul knew it's not our words that persuade. It's God's word. And again and again in ministry, as I go out and make calls, I have to admit, I don't have the right words. What can you say? In many of those situations where people are, are suffering tragedies in life and they're asking, why, oh God? But I've discovered that the word from the Bible always, always speaks to the heart of the person and gives comfort. So Paul says, hold Christ in the forefront of your mind, stand strong in the power of God's word. And then third, place a priority on reaching lost souls. In verse 10, we see some interesting words. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now initially, those words appear to be somewhat confusing. Paul says that he's continuing or persevering in his suffering for the sake of the elect. Okay, that's logical, that makes sense. But then he proceeds to say, in order that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Oh, wait a minute. Does that mean that believers who are elected by God, that God has chosen, do not have salvation in Jesus Christ? No. He's speaking of God's elect, his chosen, who have yet to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. And God calls believers, those who have already received Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who are children of God, 
to extend the offer of God's saving grace to those whom he has chosen and yet have not heard the fullness, the completeness of the gospel message. I remember being at a conference several years back. The main speaker challenged all of us who were present with one question. He said, do you really care about lost souls. And then he waited. And he asked some clarifying questions. He said, does the fact that there are people in this world who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and who literally are headed toward hell, does that cause your heart to ache? How does that fact affect you? How much do you really care about lost souls? Do you care about them more than you care about your own physical body? Do you care about them more than you care about the final score of the Giants game? Is reaching lost souls more important to you than being honored as, a, as the top salesperson of the month? Be honest. Do you really care about lost souls? Does reaching out to the gospel and presenting Jesus Christ as Savior to others motivate and compel you? Are you truly passionate about it? What does it say about the vitality of our relationship with Jesus Christ if we do not feel the need to invite an unbeliever to come to church to hear the life-giving truth of God's word. In Acts chapter 1 it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Maybe you notice I emphasized you. Because you are that person. You are the one that Luke is speaking to. In our text this, this morning, Paul's passion comes through clearly. His motivation is to remain strong, to be faithful in the midst of a time of persecution. And part of it is that he needs to reach out to those whom God has called and chosen but have not yet obtained the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Can't you sense his emotion? He yearns that others would know the Jesus Christ whom he loves above all and who he serves wholeheartedly. So let's look at Paul's final teaching. Rest secure in the promise of eternal life. Verses 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. 
Since this last part is introduced as a trustworthy saying, many scholars believe that, that it was used as an early creed in the church. And when you look closely at it, you see the parallelism and the rhythm. So it also points to the fact that it could have been a hymn that was sung during that particular time. It's clear that it's written and its structure in the original Greek is poetic. And yet Paul uses it to convey the fact that we as believers are united in Jesus Christ. What that means is that Christians are, are naturally and inseparably connected to their Savior. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Those are the important words. You consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in the union you have with Christ. Jesus, he is saying, connects us to the Father. We have a living, organic, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, which carries through his death and his resurrection. And the Bible states that, that Jesus Christ died for us, therefore... We, who confess him as our Lord and Savior, share in his death. We're also told that Jesus rose from the dead in newness of life. Therefore, we also share in his resurrection. John Calvin writes, as long as Christ remains outside of us, meaning we don't have that union with him, we don't have that connectedness with him, and we are separated from him, everything that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Do you know, are you convicted that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life? If so, we have every reason to rejoice in that truth that is brought to us in Scripture. Paul says, yes, you're going to encounter difficult times in his situation, severe. He's at the end of his life. He knew also all those who were being persecuted for their faith and tortured. And yet he says, we do not have to fear. Hold Christ in the forefront of your mind. Stand strong in the power of God's word. Place a priority on reaching lost souls and rest secure in the promise of eternal life. God gave us life not to fear, but to celebrate and to live to the fullest in our Savior Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, all of us need that reminder. We so quickly 
become discouraged. There are things that frighten us. And yet we are reminded again in the passage we, we read, the words that Paul gives to his younger companion, Timothy. That we are united in Christ. That we do not need to fear. That you are in control. And so, Lord, as we reflect on that today and in going into this new week, give to us a positive focus. Remind us that we, we live because Jesus Christ has given to us eternal life. We have so much to look forward to. Give to us a positive perspective as we approach the future. May our children see within us and our grandchildren that we truly have a relationship with Christ that is dynamic. One in which we want to share who he is with others, that we truly do care about those who are lost. And that, Lord, we realize that we do have so much to live for. May we go forward in the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.